0: Hey, deserving listeners. So recently Colin uh, emailed me and said, hey, we got to do a podcast together. And I was like, yeah, what do you want to do? And he threw out all these various ideas. There was probably like 112 ideas that he emailed me. But one of the ideas deep in the list was to watch Fatal Attraction again. So I took him up on the offer, and upon watching it, I was surprised at how much – Material it would provide us to be able to talk about various things. Movies in the 80s, the movie itself, Glenn Close, uh, Michael Douglas, uh, borderline personality disorder, stalking. So in this episode, I want to actually provide a trigger warning because we're going to be talking about stalking and violence. I, I looked into the research on stalking, and I know actually some of you out there have told me that you have been or are currently being stalked. So I want to raise awareness for stalking, because this uh, movie depicts a stalking incident. And, uh, but I don't want to hurt anyone in the process. So just be careful when you listen to this. We're not going to talk about super explicit behavior, but I could imagine it being, being triggering. So, uh, Colin, why did you put this on the list of 112 ideas for us to do a podcast about?
1: Currently, I've been interested in the idea of watching a movie as a viewer now versus a viewer 10 years ago or 20 years ago or 30 years ago, because I was having a conversation with one of my fellow, I guess you could call them cinephiles, when we were talking about how when you see period pieces, oftentimes modern ideas will creep into the characters, things that will help us connect to the people who are depicted. And we were talking about the implications of that, how sometimes we understand that our empathy only goes so far. And if if somebody, you know, if, if it's depicting a person who's wildly, violently racist or sexist or, you know, and... The goal of the movie is to empathize with them. I know it's a lot harder. It takes writing that is grander to be able to do that. And so a lot of times I, I watch a movie that was made. And again, I don't, I don't know if this is technically a period piece because it's late 80s. But when I, I wanted to watch it because as I, when I watched it as a high schooler, it was one of the first films that made me think about becoming a filmmaker, made me think about film in an intelligent way, the way shots were used, the way lighting was used, sound, the, the psychological effect of sound, and the brilliance of a performance and how a performance can propel a movie from point A to point B. And I wanted to revisit that because even though it was made to depict the time that it was made in, I was wondering if it held up because it's a highly psychological film. And I was wondering if, if it was made today, would it be made differently? Would things be censored? Would the character be depicted in a different light? And that's why I thought it would be cool to talk about. Yeah, awesome.
0: Uh, and you've made me watch terrible movies in the past, and this time I'm actually quite happy that you made me rewatch this movie. Um, so that's what we're going to do today. We're going to talk about Fatal Attraction, in the movie, Borderline Personality Disorder, stalking, and. 80s movies and movie making in general, and how if it holds up or not. This is the Psychology in Seattle podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I'm a therapist and a professor. Who are you, Umberto?
2: My name is Umberto castagna
0: and I repair old typewriters. I feel like I got a good trill on that, Umberto.
1: Yeah, man, you really. (laughs) (laughs) Who are you calling? Well, I live in Texas, and if you need a great recipe for rabbit stew, I've got your number. So it's interesting because
0: there is a <laughs> bunny boom in Seattle it's too right soon. <laughs> now. Too soon. It, like in North <laughs> Seattle, there is a huge bunny uh, proliferation in a way that mm-hmm. I've never seen before. There there have been pockets of bunnies in very in smaller communities in Seattle, but my home where I live right now, there are thousands of bunnies. Uh, there's wow. bunnies in our yard and they're almost uh, tame because humans don't chase them around and so they'll they'll just be right next to us and so watching this movie uh, <laughs> reminded me <laughs> of that uh, berno what's your relationship with this movie oh
2: actually it's I was very excited when I saw you you, you sent me the text saying that uh, Colin wanted to do fatal attraction um, because when I saw it in the theater I didn't really know what to expect uh, I remember seeing the trailers but you know It wasn't a movie of a sort that I had seen before, uh, certainly that I didn't remember. And when it started, and I was thinking as I rewatched it recently for this, I was thinking it starts slow, especially if you've not seen the previews, you're like, where is this going? Uh, And only for the first like 15 minutes or so. But it then climbs exponentially in horrificness. (laughs) Like I, I actually had forgotten just how quickly it escalates. So at the time when I watched it, I remember being in the theater, like, gripping my the sides of my seat. And these weren't the nice, comfy recliner seats where I could just kind of, like, pretend that I was in a cocoon or something. I'm sitting there uncomfortably next to everyone else. And this was at a time of non-social isolation. And I'm sitting there just like, what's happening? Why is this person going so insane? Um, there's some very memorable moments in that movie. Very dark, memorable moments. Yeah, there's some
0: classic scenes. There's just some classic scenes.
2: For years later, I would always, for random reasons, go like, Stay away from my wife, my life. (laughs) I would just like, (laughs) I will not be ignored. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so I definitely enjoyed it in the theaters. It left a mark.
0: Yeah, so, so let's go through our various different chapters here. L- later we're going to get into borderline, and even later we'll get into stalking and the research on that. But first, let's just review the movie and, and talk about it. But at the very end, let's give our rating. I want to flip things around. Normally, I like, I, I'm starting to listen to this podcast called Friendly Fire, where they review war movies. And they always wait until the very end to give their, their rating. And they also uh, they do another thing that I want us to think about is they identify a guy, a, a character that they that you identified with, and it could be it's usually not the main character. It could be the main character, but usually it's like some extra in the movie, just someone that you're like you just felt kind of a connection with. So think. So I'm stealing that from Friendly Fire. But let's talk about what we would liked about the movie. I'll, I'll start it off. Here's here's what my notes said we already said it's a classic movie. I mean, as I as I was about 10 20 minutes into it, I just wrote down classic. This movie just has classic written all over it. And the thing that I I didn't remember it being cuz I would have been 16 when I saw this movie is that it it has a I don't I can't remember the the is it verisimilitude or there's a Veris- Verisimilitude. Or, or cinema or something. There's a word for movies where they try to make it very real. Veritas verita cinema. Ver- Ver- Sim- cinema. Veritas cinema. Yeah. Is the style, the directing, the writing... It felt like a documentary for a while, you know, when they're in the home and the kid is playing and the mom is doing something and the dad is on the phone. It, it felt like you just were watching a documentary and the way that people would talk over each other, that kind of style. And, it's, and- sorry, it's, it's backwards. It's backwards. It's cinema verite. Cinema, cinema verite. verite. There you yeah. go.
2: Not verite. Cinema. cinema verite.
0: Yeah, and I I really like that. I thought Michael Douglas and Glenn Close were just fantastic, and they're really at the height of their powers, which I, I want to get to maybe at the very end if we have time to review their their uh, you know uh, list of films, their filmography, because. Right, right around this time, there's like a plus or minus five years where both of them made some of the, some super iconic movies for, for my childhood. I liked how Michael Douglas, um, when, when Glenn Close shows up at the house, by the way, we're going to spoil the movie. Glenn Close shows up at the house and is talking to the wife. I like how the way that they wrote it and the way Michael Douglas acted it. Other movies would have had like, him going to the bathroom and like smashing something or some kind of visual like he's really upset but in the moment you can just see him trying to act normal but he you can sense he's freaking out and you really identify with i just thought that that scene was kind of a unique scene i also liked the way that he sought advice from his lawyer friend you know, that's a very, that's sort of a scene that they often will leave out of movies these days where it's like, you're in a tough spot. You should probably consult with a lawyer. You just, you know, it's like, what should I do? What are my options here? What does the law say? Like, you don't see that kind of conversation. And I, and I appreciated <laughs> that. Sorry to interject there. That
2: in fact is so often the source of frustration, right? Cause you're sitting there like, why don't you just ask someone?
0: Yeah. Exactly. Yeah,
2: like, look it up it, on Wikipedia.
0: Yeah, and the the scene seemed so mundane. But again, it was in the f- style of the cinema verite, or as we call it, veritimacilitude cinema. Um, <laughs> um, as they say in France. <laughs> yeah. And the um, French bread, French dressing, um, when they fight, the the husband and wife fight and the daughter just starts crying, it's just a devastating scene i don't remember that i think when i saw it when i this movie when i was 16 i just didn't care but when i see this now at 49 and i I just see this child just crying when the parents are fighting it was i mean and again it was it's written in a style and directed in a style that is just it's a i think it's sort of an 80s thing i mean what do you guys think like As I was watching this, I felt like I was remembering a lot of movies, Kramer versus Kramer, these sorts of movies, where there was a period of time where a lot of movies came out. They were really going for, let's break away from that old way of making cinema where you're basically taking a stage play and putting it in in front of a movie camera. Let's actually try to make this look as real as possible, where people talk over each other and staging isn't always beautiful. And, uh, homes aren't usually well kept. You know what I mean? It's a, it, it felt very real. D- do you think, did you feel like this was, it had an eighties feel in that way?
1: I absolutely did. Yeah. I think that this is something that makes this movie stand out and other movies of the era is that the people are people you could meet. You feel like you could walk on the street and this person could be right beside you. And I'll I'll use a more recent film. It's not It's not within the last couple of years, but far more recent than Fatal Attraction. It's the Beyonce Knowles picture, Obsessed. Similar premise. uh, Quote, unquote, wacko lady is obsessed with a married man. And she seeks to insert herself into the the family dynamic in a horrific way. Now, something about that film is that everything is so glossy right down to their house. It's this huge, glossy, beautiful, unobtainable house. And beyonce is this beautiful unattainable big hair but like she's always she always looks like she's about to go to this elegant party and then and all the people in the office have this pristine look and then Ali larder the quote-unquote crazy girl she has this pristine look and of course idris elba is a perfect specimen of a man and he's always in the perfect suit so one of these that's not what you get from fatal attraction the the whole point, I think, of Fatal Attraction is to show the destruction of the everyman, the man who has the family, who wasn't perfect, isn't perfect, and actually definitively so, is not perfect and is fallible. And that's why the things that happen to him have an impact on the audience. And I was listening to, I'm I'm in the middle of an audio called Save the Cat. And one of the earlier, it's about filmmaking. And one of the earlier chapters, they say, well, the whole point of your character That's supposed to be this action star. It doesn't really matter all the time how cool they are. If you don't care about them, their coolness factor is just going to float off into the distance. And so Michael Douglas's lack of cool, but intense empathy, you know, that was, that's what really got me into the movie. And I think that that's, that's something that you see in, in movies of the decade and more so than just performances. You also see it in the way the camera cameras are positioned because things will zoom in on objects then you'll have cam- the camera will pan out and you'll see two actors in one shot as opposed to medium close up medium close up one exterior medium close up medium close up so the serenity of the people in modern day movies has some sometimes also is mirrored by the shots and i think sometimes the blur- the the blending of like you said the more stagey aspect of old hollywood and the new experimental shots creates ultimately more life.
0: Wow, well put.
1: Yeah, bravo. Uh, I I was going to
2: say less, but yeah, that's very good. Uh, what I thought was, first of all, I definitely didn't remember it was 87. It feels like much later. It was sort of ahead of its time. But I guess, to your point, it was in a, in a type of uh, filmmaking that does stand the test of time. Because if you look at Basic Instinct what, a decade later or something? Maybe not quite, but a few years later. Uh, Probably like instance, I think five or, yeah, five, five seven, seven years later. later. That one is nowhere near on the same level. And, you know, it's not exactly the same premise either, but it's along those lines. And yet none of the characters are really believable. Everything's over the top. I mean, it's a fun movie. Don't get me wrong. I enjoyed it just like the next guy, but it's, no, it's not a classic. It's not as on the same level. Right. And uh, I do think that, Especially as I was rewatching it, because I think the first time I watched it, I didn't appreciate those aspects. I didn't appreciate a lot of things because I was just younger and stuff. And now w- watching it again, I thought, man, this is interesting because uh, none of the reactions seem out of place, as extreme as it gets. Yeah, you're like, yeah, that seems right on the money.
0: Um, yeah, yeah. yeah so, just to piggyback on that, I loved that. That for the first ninety five percent of the movie. It's all just kind of like a, like a, I don't know, a very real story that happens all the time. And the way that they acted, the way they talked, the situations, it was just extremely mundane. But I, we all, or at least I remember, and maybe the previews told us that this is heading towards some kind of, uh, you know, shootout at the end. And that amps up the... And of course, you know, the bunny dying amps everything up as well. So
2: Actually, to that point, uh, it's funny, you you mentioned Colin, you've been reading the uh, Save the Cat. Because I've been doing a ton of research on how to write and how to develop plot and characters. As I was rewatching the movie at the beginning, I thought, man, this is really interesting. Because I don't know how you could get away with this if you were just pitching it linearly. Um, If you didn't like spoil the fact that it's going to get bad because it does start so mundane, it starts so normal. So it, um, if you were thinking of it as a book, the first chapter would be like, and he went to work and then he went to a cocktail party and oh, and then someone kind of like flirted oddly with someone, but, and nothing happens. But they make and it interesting. all of a it, But they make it interesting anyway. Oh yeah, absolutely, you know I mean? absolutely. But in terms of plot development, like it's, it's it, and, and it's accomplishing the goal because it's just showing us, hey, this is an every guy. He's just got a family with a wife. And then, you know, they're busy, so they can't get around to sex that often anymore because the kids and the thing, you know. But that's it. But then when it starts ramping up, like I said, it accelerates like crazy. Yeah.
0: So I want to go over my notes on all the late 80s things. So if it's one thing about getting older, there, it's the ability to feel... Uh, Eras that you've lived through very viscerally when you're watching a movie. So there's a lot of. As I was watching it, within the first five minutes, I was like, "Oh my god, this is bringing me back to my teenage years." So one is the ultra real thing, which is kind of a an '80s thing. It's not only in the '80s, of course, but I, it, there's a thread of movies that did a lot of that. Uh, short champagne glasses. You know, you notice champagne. You know, now it's all champagne flutes. Everyone was oh, weird. Yeah. It, that was wasn't a,
2: always the case
0: then. No. Around 1998 or so, I would say it was all flutes. Before that, it was all those shallow champagne glasses. Um, the other 80s thing that's actually in a fair amount of Michael Douglas movies is they – and maybe you know more about this than I do, Colin, is they would pump a lot of fog or smoke into the
1: room. Do you know what I mean, Colin? I can attach the feeling to certain scenes in this movie, but I don't know the technique.
0: When I watch movies in the late 80s, there's a lot of that where it, when you watch it, you see light streaming in through the windows kind of a thing. And the only way that you can get that, I think, is if you put a lot of some kind of particulates in the air that, that catches that mm, light. Interesting. So it's that's kind of an 80s thing to just provide mood. It's always sort of a moodiness thing. Um... The other thing was the just the proliferation of perms. I mean the the perm quotient in this movie was off the <laughs> off the charts. I mean both uh, of our yeah. female leads just had huge perms and when I was 16, 15 years old, 17 in high school, there was a perm year where all the girls got just perms and some of them were good where <laughs> they went in the direction of Brooke Shields, and some of them were bad, in which they went in the direction of the gal from uh, Dirty Dancing. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. (laughs) You know? (laughs) This is the the Permian Age. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Um, Other late 80s things, answering machines, because that was when they really kind of came into their own. Uh, Before about 1987, answering machines were, were for, like, rich business people. But late 80s, that was when pretty much everyone started getting answering machines. Um, records, of course. You know they had a he had a fancy hi fi stereo with right, actual right. actual records. Long trench coats. So, in the when I was fifteen sixteen years old, I went to Pike Place Market, and uh, we were so jazzed up to be in the in the big city of Seattle. And I went into the second hand store, and there was a big, a uh, long trench coat. Uh, it was used, and it went. Yet think of. Um, uh, don't you forget about me? You know, simple minds. Like he, 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 in his videos, he has these long trench coats, and I bought this super long trench coat. It went, you know, it's it, from the top up. It looked like a suit jacket, but it went down to my ankles, and that was what was fashion. And there was a lot of that in this movie too. <laughs> Maxell cassette tapes. I can't tell you how many Maxell cassette tapes I owned. Uh, and worshipped as a, I still have some of them. Actually, you you might even be able to see them from from your standpoint, right right there. See that whole stack right there. There's some. Max oh, those them. are Max. Oh, interesting. Uh, normal size watches. Everyone today has watches like everyone's flavor Flav these days. Uh, when 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 I grew up, people had normal size watches. Uh, yeah, exactly, and uh, and I think he has a swatch on of all things, which is pretty cool. Oh man, those were the hot thing at
2: the end of the eighties.
0: Yeah, no airbags in the cars, which is interesting. Um, lawyer as a protagonist, I feel like we we've lost the lawyer as protagonist movies. I feel like that was a eighties nineties thing. I feel like mm. ha- every every other movie was lawyer as protagonist. Um stereotyping japanese people very 80s. oh my gosh i was so embarrassed when the movie started i was yeah. like oh no yeah head bow they're foreign japanese and, sushi equals and his fancy friends business. making
2: fun of him too it's like oh look look he's bowing He's like shh, shh, shh.
0: yeah 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 and the, but that was very 80s because in the 80s suddenly everyone was like waking up to this notion that japan was beating americans at the auto industry which up and you know maybe you can't relate to this, Colin, because you don't, you didn't grow up during this time. But when we were growing up, or when I was growing up, in America, America, th- America was number one in a lot of things. We are number one in space. We are number one in technology. We are number one in auto making. We were not. We made the cars, Peugeot crap, you know, uh, Saab, you know, whatever socialist car. You, you got to have Trans Ams and Fords, you know. And these, are, these are cars. And then all of a sudden, these tiny little, you know, foreign, bowing, uh, raw fish-eating weirdos from across, you know, <laughs> the ocean are, you know, my people, by the way. If, if you don't know, I'm Japanese, so I'm not, I'm not speaking out of turn. Are suddenly making cars that are way more reliable— Uh, last longer, better gas mileage, uh, and cheaper, better, cheaper, reliable, and, you know, just... And it was all of a sudden, Americans were like, what's going on? And so there was this struggle with that. And I was a part of that as a Japanese person growing up in America at the time, with the last name of Honda, by the way. So there was that whole thing, which is very late 80s. Now it's like... Whenever there's an Asian person in a movie, they're, they're almost never Japanese, which bums me out. They're always Korean or Chinese or something, which I understand because there's not a lot of Japanese Americans in comparison to the Filipinos, for example. But anyway, I want to ask you guys a question about uh, the next thing. The sex scene, when they have sex on the uh, the sink and the water – there's a water motif pretty obvious in this movie – One, she takes water. the 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 faucet gets accidentally turned on, and she takes water and she starts shoving it in his mouth. Do you remember that? Yeah, shove it. So there's. I I want your take on that because I found that to be odd. The second thing I want your take on was explicit, and I don't remember sex scenes being that explicit (laughs) in the '80s. But there is something '80s about having a sex scene. So on one hand, it was. Too explicit for the 80s, in my estimation. But I feel like like saxophone, a saxophone solo is an 80s thing. A good, <laughs> a good sex scene is a very 80s thing, too, you know? Yeah. So what did you guys think of the water-in-the-mouth uh, behavior? I mean, by the way, the, the best
2: thing is if you can combine the sax solo with the sex scene. Yeah. You got the sax sex. Honestly, I was shocked when I saw that, which is why again, my misconceptions of how I saw this movie, but uh, because I remember being sort of embarrassed a little bit during those scenes, like, oh, that's a lot of explicitness. But then again, you're right. In the 80s, you had like Terminator. Terminator had like some pretty explicit sex. Right. So I had been overexposed to sex scenes in the 80s anyways. But I still remember in that scene Maybe it was the combination that he wasn't supposed to be doing it. And it was so animalistic and so, rah, they're just pawing at each other. And the fact that, like, doesn't anyone care that the water is running? Like, come on, people. And, And yes, she grabs the water and just smears it on his face. And I'm probably going, like, what about all the germs? You didn't even use soap. What's going on? And then she smears the water on her titty paws and... Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah, it's especially
1: triggering now, given our current state of affairs. When it's when it's like something dirty in a film, I think. Yeah, yeah, I, I, uh, I, I like to think of Alex as water. Actually, while I was watching it this last time, I think that as she manifests, depending on how powerful she feels or how a part of Michael Douglas's life she is, the water will take different forms. You know, in this instance, she's she 's literally shoved down his throat he 's tasting her he she 's leading him to different spots on her body, leading him to her nipples and Later on, after she 's cut her wrists he she's, she's sort of um, for whatever reason that she did that, she has him for those moments because he 's taking care of her, and the water you can see outside is cascading over the windows in this blanket of rain and and it's um, later on, you know, after she said the famous line, "I'll, I, I know, I'll not be uh, ignored, Dan." We, um, we, we get the the water that builds up in the tub, and then eventually seeps onto the the floor that bleeds down, you know, from floor two to floor one, and the dog is the only one that notices it, and then the water on the the contained hot water on the stove is heating up. And, and then of course, earlier we had the bunny that was boiling in the festering yeah. hot water. So I just think of her as this, this shapeless person hmm. and a That's person who is seeking to, to find places to go places to be. And Michael Douglas's decisions are largely putting her in certain places. I'm not blaming him entirely. I'm saying, you know, the world all the circumstances of her life have put her water in different places, and so I think that's in that moment she actually has she's it's like uh, like Gandalf manipulating the elements, you know? She actually has control, and so she's going to throw the water at him. And wow. that's what I got from that. That's yeah. really interesting. I I I hadn't. I mean,
2: I, I did notice that there were water motifs, but I hadn't really thought of it through like that. That's really interesting. But I will say that what you just said about when she slits her wrists, that's one of the things I'm talking about. It went from, oh, stay. Oh, please stay. Okay, I'll rip some buttons on your shirt. To like the very next scene, her wrists are, are bleeding. It is like, what? And it gives you that sense of like, you're not safe as a viewer. At any moment, this is going to explode in a nuclear bomb.
0: Yeah, and we'll get into that more later, but just to piggyback on that, the sense of danger is what it's like to be with someone like this, which we'll get into in a second. Um, all right, so let's go to things we didn't like. Well, I, there wasn't a lot of things I didn't like. Um, I, there were a few things I would have wished it was a little different. I would. Have, I wish they would have made her a little bit more relatable, Alex's character, like there was a scene where she almost calls the wife, but doesn't. You know, she's upset, and she calls the, the home. The wife answers the phone, and she's, like, got to tell her. But then she hangs up the phone, and she's upset. So in that moment, it humanizes her. It shows that she's not evil. She is upset, and she's hurt, and but she has a good side to her. You know, she has a limit at that moment anyway of just, like, well, I can't destroy these people's lives. You know, she she makes that choice. And I wish that there was just a little bit more to make her more relatable. Um, I I also wished that when the husband tells the wife about the affair, I wish the wife wouldn't have, like, gone, quote-unquote, hysterical like she did in the movie. You know, she she really flips out. Now, is that a possible reaction? Absolutely. But... It just kind of rings of that time where you see women as weak and hysterical and he's the he's the rational one, you know what I mean? I, I will say this is a trend for Michael
2: Douglas's career. If you think of, you know, not only Basic Instinct, but then uh, the Michael Crichton one, he did Disclosure, where the point of disclosure was a very anti-me too thing in a way. Cause it's like the whole point of disclosure is like, Oh, you think that sexual harassment is only for women? Well, read my book. Oh yeah. And, um, and so like, it seems like a lot of these movies, he's the, the victim.
0: Well, not just Michael way. Douglas, but a whole string of movies at the time where, where they did this sort of thing, which like single white female misery, the hand that rocks the cradle, uh, these kinds of movies it's all right, women right. doing what is primarily a male uh, perpetrated crime right and th- there's Which, something to be
2: fair yeah to be fair i mean that that gave it novelty right so it was like a yeah. little unexpected in a sense
0: yeah i guess but it, and maybe that's why it, it gets made into a movie but i don't know it it's just it's notable um the other thing that i didn't like i really did not like was the ending Uh, For the first – up until she enters the house, um, even after The Bunny, I was like, okay, I'm with this movie. I could see this happening. If it's one thing that pulls me out of a movie is, come on. And it just gets worse. Like, when she enters the house, she's like – it's like a horror movie at that point. She's Michael Myers, you know what I mean? (laughs) And she's got a knife, and she's digging it into her thigh. I mean, what, what's that? Like, clinically speaking, that I don't even know what that is. Um, and then he drowns her. She's out, okay? So, so we have two—if you, you don't remember the movie, Michael Douglas holds Glenn Close under the water in the bathtub, and she's struggling, but then she stops struggling. And then a good, I don't know, minute goes by with Glenn Close, eyes wide open, underneath still water, clearly dead. And then, boom, she emerges from the water for one last, you know, orgasm of trying to kill him. And then, you know, and then the wife shoots, shoots her.
2: That's actually quite common. I'm sorry. You know, I don't know if you ever watched Encino Man or if you watched, uh, you know, there's this movie about Friday the 14th or something. It's quite
0: common. Yeah. So, two options. One, she, (laughs) like, went unconscious with her eyes open and while underwater had consciousness again. (laughs) She stops breathing and then comes to life with total, you know... Ability to do something, the reflex. Yeah, dun, dun,
2: dun, that's not likely. Dun.
0: Or two, she was faking it, which doesn't seem very likely either. Right. So, but that's just it. That's that one shot is right out of every other horror movie, and it, it was directed like a horror movie. It had all the horror movie tropes, and I just thought, ah. Uh, well, and, and, and go ahead. let me.
1: I. I mean, my. You definitely that. I think a lot of people felt, including Glenn Close, felt the way that you felt because there was another ending that she wanted, yeah. and she thought it was better. Yeah, so, so I'm not refuting it. I'm, I'm. This is the way I saw it, and I'm curious if you got any of this. Is I, I sort of saw, as I thought she was water. I kind of saw Glenn Close's character as a reflection, a dark reflection of Michael Douglas's character. Things that were repressed, that were external, and I know that that. You know, in in terms of for cinematic purposes, that diminishes her um, agency a bit. And and I'm, I'm not intending to do that. But what I what I am saying is that I think that him not being able to kill her at the end was kind of meaningful because when he goes to her apartment and attacks her, there's that moment where he's he's looking at her and she's smiling at him and he's backing away very, very slowly. And you see the knife on the counter. and there's this inability to do it and i know that we could we could rationalize well he's thinking about his life he he doesn't want to go to jail blah 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 you know he's not a murderer but then you go further and he thinks that he's dealt with the problem and he's looking in this reflective surface water right at this supposedly dead person and she's still alive and the only person that can really destroy it is the wife and she comes in and she takes care of it and, and i i don't know what that narrative is meant to mean but it seemed almost like He had created and and you were talking about, I think, Umberto, you know, some of these, these trends in Michael Douglas's movies where he is the victim. But I would say, especially in this movie, and in, in some cases, in those other films, he is directly responsible for what happens. He is, he contributes to what happens in the screenplay. He neglects certain people, he makes mistakes, and I'm not judging him for that. But I, I guess that's where I went with the ending. But I do see something I think that you're catching on to, which is why it doesn't work perfectly for everyone is the style is different because from A to let's say B which would be like you said bunny <laughs> the the film is is utterly tangible it, it's sitting on your shelf in your home and then the separation occurs because the filming style changes the way the, the there's a lack of dialogue There's a new distance to characters. There's an emphasis on motion and music telling the story as opposed to sounds. Sounds like the ringing of a phone. And it becomes more Hitchcockian. You know, it's more it. it, and, And I don't think the film was Hitchcockian where it's a visual. It's telling its story in those visual terms like Psycho did you know the whole because psycho is what it is from a to z and so when you see Vera miles or see uh you know walk up to the the house at the end and it's you don't hear anything that she's saying but it's the slow methodical walk and it's all silence and then norma bates comes in with a knife there's no tonal distraction yeah so I, i do see what you're saying
0: yeah i will say that that scene has some awesome elements to it the music on is on or something right and he can't hear the screaming upstairs the water, like you said, dripping from the ceiling, the dog. I mean, it has tremendous tension. And there's a way to do that scene, I think, and it would have totally satisfied my, my disposition or sensibilities, is Glenn, Alex, Glenn Close's character, enters the house, and she's, she's not really – she's conflicted. She wants to hurt this family, but she doesn't know. From the way they shot this, Glenn Close went in there to kill these people, especially the wife, right, and somehow like evades everyone and ends up upstairs like this like a Mike Myers kind of character. but anyway, let's say Alex enters the house and she's conflicted, you just see her and but she's not digging a thing into her leg she you just see that she's she doesn't you know she maybe she turns to leave the house, but then she sees something, and she no i'm gonna get these a holes and she turns around. And not with a knife, but she just viscerally gets into a fight, and people—maybe there's people falling down a stairwell or something—you know, something just more relatable, other than literally Mike Myers' big butcher knife coming down, you know, out of the sky and 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 slashing people. It just—it just had a very. Now, let's go over the alternative ending, um, which I didn't know about, but you referred to, uh, Colin. So, the alternative ending was that Alex actually slashes her throat with the knife that Dan left on the counter that had Dan's fingerprints on it. So then Dan gets implicated in the murder, but then the wife finds the Max L cassette tape of Alex talking about how she's going to kill herself, and that gets Dan free. And so Dan and Dan is okay, and the wife is okay, and the kid is okay in the end. But Alex is dead. Now, uh For me, that would have been a better ending, but what would have been an even better ending, and this is dark, is that Alex slashes her throat with a knife, Dan finds out, and then we just sort of pan out. Like, there's no consequence, there's no police that runs in and accuses Dan of killing her. Dan, the wife never finds out about the affair, maybe, I don't know, but, like, Dan is just left knowing what happened and he can't maybe he can't tell anyone maybe that's like the ending like he wants to tell someone about what happened but he can't tell anyone i know that's dark but to me that would have been an amazing ending what do you think Berta?
2: well what's interesting is the name of the thing is fatal attraction which i don't know if that was originally the name of the script or if that was something that they landed on for marketing purposes but that name speaks more to the uh knife coming out of the water ending. I'm not agreeing. I I mean, I do agree with you that that is a different tone from the beginning part of the movie. And I, I agree with you, like, the way you explained it, especially like, yeah, that's a little too far. However, what you just described was interesting because if they had actually doubled down on that reality aspect and on not necessarily making it sympathetic that she's so insane, but like, really at least, man maybe even hinting a little bit more at her mental struggle and stuff like that. And then at the end, having that pain, the, the, the pain in him of like, what have I done? And now I can't share it with it. I like it. I think I could, I could get behind that. Let's do a remake.
0: Colin, what do you think?
1: I like that. I think that people are aligned with you, especially modern filmmakers. There's a film called angel of mine that I watched a couple of weeks ago. It's not the same story, but it's the same genre. There's family drama and there's the, the question of people's Sanity is called it a question. It's a very psychological film and it doesn't fall into any kind of slasher trope. There are, it's, there was something to that movie about the soft action. And what I mean by the soft action is instead of a, like you said, a knife, a, a crazy ax murderer, the, the tension of uh, some glass shattering, somebody being pushed up against the wall and one thing that's, that's aggressive, that disrupts your comfort. So I think that there is a subtler way to take that. And I'm happy that you know people are, are going that direction because it, it allows for the psychology of the character who's most important, and in this case it would be Alex, to be important from the beginning into the end not just until it's no longer serving the movie because I do get it when it comes to a horror film where we are we want to be intrigued you know we and and we want I think to on some level for the filmmaker to withhold the answer but sometimes when it's so realistic it's actually better maybe to give us some answers because like you said, the characters survive a little longer as opposed to being more dated in, in this case.
0: Yeah. I mean, I get it because this movie was fantastically successful and with my ending, it's an art movie. And with their ending, yeah. it's like a number one movie of the year. Well, so. okay. there could have been a, a an in between though, because
2: like, I do agree that the minute underwater part, is a different kind of ending, like, I, and I bet you that's like, what it like, was. It's like, like
0: she's a supernatural killer at
1: that yeah, point, right? You know?
2: Now, I, I like Colin's angle of like, well, if she is water, but that's a little too surreal for the, yeah. like,
0: that. That's I, that, you're talking lighthouse now, Colin. Come yeah.
2: On. Exactly. So I I like the idea that there was a thread that if you're a a more perceptive viewer, you would catch on to and like, but I don't like that. Then you need to have caught onto that thread in order to understand why she survived a minute underwater. But what if they hadn't? What if it had been a little less slashery just in that moment, still give the audience a thrill, just not quite so unbelievable. Would that have ruined the ending for the average viewer? Probably
0: not. Um, it definitely would have taken, you know, at 50% of the annoyance away for sure. That, that minute underwater and then the, you know, the uh, she comes out of water like she's the kraken from the deep, you know. Anyway, Or go the other direction.
2: As she emerges from the water, you see scales start to form on her face yeah. and she's the shape of
1: water. Yeah. Unless the point of the film is to take away the humanity of this woman until there is none left.
0: But I think there's a way to do that that would have in my eyes would have been believable, you know. Yeah. Like I said, she didn't have a knife. She just with her bare hands cuz she could have done mm-hmm. a lot of damage to, you know, that wife, you know, slamming her head against the wall or I don't know. And you There's can't give
2: lot. me dog day afternoon for two hours and then at the last minute, he's a superhero. <laughs> exactly.
0: Yeah. I went from dog day afternoon to Friday the 13th in like half a second. So let's go into uh, borderline personality disorder uh, because a lot of people come to this for psychology related topics. So let's talk about it. Um, so the, uh, they did do research on borderline during the time, and it was purposely trying to depict borderline personality disorder. Um, and in my notes, I have it misspelled, and it's annoying me, so I'm going to reword it. <laughs> um, so this is a common presentation of borderline. Now, until the end, I will say that. But it's yeah. not... But it's only so borderline personality disorder is a label that we put on a condition where someone is very, very sensitive to rejection and has difficulty forming a self because of traumas early in life. The abuse or mistreatment of some kind early in life was extensive enough that the person wasn't able to develop a sense of self, meaning that they don't have self esteem, they don't know their emotions very well. And they're extremely sensitive to rejection because they were repeatedly and traumatically rejected and abandoned when they were young. So until the very end, when she enters the house, this is a at least a common presentation, particularly up until the um, the bunny scene. Up until the bunny scene, there are a lot of people out there who suffer from borderline personality disorder who have... Done those behaviors. Now, it went up the ladder. So, say before she slashed her wrists, I would venture to say that most people with borderline personality disorder have been there before, at least in one relationship. So, up until the slashing of the wrists, very common. After the slashing of the wrists, then we're looking at a smaller set of people with borderline. The bunny thing, we're looking at a really rare person with borderline. <laughs> so if you want to associate, if, if you don't know what borderline is and you want to understand what it is, look at the behavior up up until the the suicide attempt, The when she was being clingy and she tries to coerce him into coming back and how easily she felt betrayed and how angry she got when he started to say, like, look, I think this relationship is over how distraught she was, how she wasn't just like, oh, I miss you. She seemed viscerally traumatized by him not wanting to be with her, how she was irrational in her ideas of where the relationship was going to go, how uh, she would do anything to get him back into her life. People with borderline personality disorder, for the most part, at least have those impulses, whether or not they're going to do those things. It depicts borderline very well in that way. Um, Now, the suicide attempt, we could argue if it was an actual attempt or what we call a gesture as a way of trying to alert someone to how much suffering you're going through. Uh, That happens as well. A lot of people with borderline have suicide uh, attempts in their life, unfortunately. Um, So That's what I'll say about that, but I want to be clear because a lot of our listeners identify as people suffering from borderline, and hashtag not all borderline. (laughs) This is one particular presentation that if – and they gave us enough data, actually, where I would have diagnosed her based on the behavior that we saw with borderline, Um, but to be clear – the percentage of people with borderline that will break into someone's house and try to kill people is, like, extremely low. We're talking, you know, 0.01% or something, you know. So the vast majority would would never do that because they're not psychopaths. The, so we we might add in some psychopathy where she doesn't, you know, she's like a she's like a, a latent Charlie Manson on the inside in some ways.
2: So I zoned down for a bit, but if I understand you right, what you mean is that uh, it's kind of a superpower that these borderline people have that they can
0: if, breathe longer underwater under
2: some cir- circumstances.
0: Yeah, you got the gist Sounds of it. Sounds awesome. Yeah, you got the gist of it. That's that's the DSM diagnosis. Cool. Um, so uh, yeah, and I, if you suffer from borderline and you watch the first half of this movie, you might be able to really relate to it. And the key here is that people with borderline have been abandoned, traumatized, and so they're very very sensitive to abandonment and they basically assume they're always going to be abandoned. Um, so let's talk about stocking here. Um, so let's see. Research on stocking and I'm going to do some some quiz questions to you in a second, but just before we do that, so there are a lot of underlying diet. well let's take a break first and when we get back, let's continue. What do you say? Let's do it. <laughs> All right, we're back from the break. If Alex, played by Glenn Close, were to tell everyone to become a patron, what would she sound like, Berto? I noticed that there was something,
2: some sort of chemistry maybe or a moment between us. I just wanted you to consider uh, coming over to our website and, or maybe Patreon and, you know, maybe becoming a patron. And, but what do you mean now? No. But you have to. You, you can't say no. I, I will not be not patronized. You have to do it.
0: Ah! Now, to be clear, we're not mocking Borderline. Um, I, a, a, if you listen to this podcast, everyone should understand that I specialize in treating people with Borderline. I have a lot of sympathy and compassion for people with Borderline. Um, So we're not mocking that, but that was hilarious, Berto. That was amazing. (laughs) Um, So uh, underlying diagnoses, for so they've studied people who stalk, and the underlying diagnoses are varied, but some common diagnoses that they found are borderline, but also things like schizophrenia, delusional disorder. So with schizophrenia and and delusional disorder, the stalking would be in the style of uh, they, you, like, what's the frequency, Kenneth? That that whole uh, story, right? Uh, um, where it's you believe that this famous person or this person that you know is in cahoots with the aliens that are trying to get you, and so you will stalk this person because of a mental illness, and that, that's a common scenario. With borderline, uh, the stalking would be because of this, a- and uh, and it's often men, by the way, who suffer from borderline who will stalk. Bipolar disorder is another uh, diagnosis that can be found in stalkers. Substance-related disorders, which is can be very common, um, either just alcohol abuse that gets to you or uh, using meth and that can make you psychotic. Major depression as well. All right, so lifetime prevalence rates of being stalked um, for women in the United States. Percentage, guess. Colin, what do you say?
1: I'd say 75
0: uh burdo 60 uh 8 to 16% of of women oh. in the United States.
1: Oh,
2: I think yeah. we get it backwards. Out. Yeah. Wait, I, I did we both hear it backwards then?
0: Lifetime prevalence out. rates of being stocked of of women in the United States?
2: Yeah. No, I just I I've heard it be so frequent but okay. No, <laughs> I mean in
0: terms of I mean uh in terms of unwanted behavior, I mean there's there's a spectrum oh, okay. there. I see. But it's in terms of, extra,
1: yeah, I extrapolated on okay. on that. Yeah. Yeah,
0: in terms of what would be considered stalking, where the okay, the individual is yeah. like, yeah, I am being systematically stalked yeah, by a it. individual <laughs> who is still though. Yeah, for a long well, period of time. But yeah, I mean, eight the... eight to yeah, sixteen percent. That's like that's huge. It's a lot of people. Yeah. Uh, men victims percentage lifetime prevalence. Four percent Great, two to five percent. You are both right. Uh, duration for most is is a year or less, which I guess is some reprieve since it doesn't last forever. But there, ten percent lasts for five or more years, which would be awful. Uh, gender: uh, Women are blank times more likely to be stalked. Colin, what do you think?
1: I'm gonna say twenty-five.
0: Okay, brutal. Um, fifteen. Three. A lot of men get stalked A lot of dudes are being stalked So our, our classic stereotype is male stalking female, right? And that certainly right. is the most common profile But there are a lot of men stalking other men And there are a lot of women stalking men I mean, not yeah. the, it's not the dominant profile But millions, okay? People of color are more likely to be stalked, by the way Research finds um, What behaviors So I have a list of behaviors here That are reported by Stalking victims You know like The stalker did this to me What are those things do you think Let's go back and forth Colin what What do you think
1: Well parking You know for sure has to be one Parking near okay. where they live Near a residence
0: Okay Birdo
1: uh, sending text messages. In, good at all times, Colin. I would say um, following schedules, tracking schedules.
0: Okay, good, Berto.
1: Um, taking photos of them from a distance.
2: Wow,
0: you guys would be good stalkers. <laughs> um, so well, we stalk have, each other. I have so forty, 40 for years'
2: experience stalking
0: people. So, <laughs> Berto said the most common, which is text messaging and phone calls, mm. which is sixty-three percent. Um, this is the favorite tactic by both male and for female perpetrators, which makes sense. It's the easiest thing to do, right? You just mm-hmm. text and call. Um, unwanted letters and emails, 30%. Uh, being the brunt of rumors spread by the perpetrator, 29%. Being followed or spied upon, which you mentioned, calling, 25%. Getting unexpectedly confronted by the perpetrator in person, 22%. Being waited for, that's kind of like that parking thing, 20%. Receiving unwanted presence, nine percent. So when you when you say this, isn't it eerie to just think about those things? Like, yeah, you, like you get frequent text messages. They start spreading rumors about you. Like, oh, that, I didn't
2: know you were gonna be here.
0: Yeah. Oh. Yeah, being followed, spied upon, getting, uh, you know, uh, being waited for. My God, like like they're just sitting outside
1: your work, and you're like, there they are. Um, And the movie does a good job, I think, of explaining how you might be, you, the victim, might be ignored, to quote, you know, Glenn Close's character, in terms of what Michael Douglas's character goes through when he comes to the cops, you know, or, or reaches out to, you know, he doesn't, obviously, he's trying to keep it a secret. But there's, um, I would guess, and correct me if I'm wrong, that there's probably a level of nullification that happens whenever you say that you're being stalked, or, or at least there's, um, there's a it's not panic immediately, probably. You know, people, oh, they'll get over it, or or you've made your bed, lie in it sort of thing, which right. is what the cop says.
0: Right, exactly. Yeah, the laws are getting slightly better over time, but they are not as robust as they need to be. I mean, imagine going through something like this. This is absolutely criminal behavior. In some ways, if if I was being stalked, I'd rather them just pull up and, like, punch the crap out of me for, like, a half an hour (laughs) and get it over with than (laughs) the constant fear of where are they? What are they going to do? So what are the victims' worst fears as a result of stalking? Let's list those. Colin, give me one.
2: Disruption of family life. That's something – some private thing will – Emerge of them, maybe some photos or
1: okay humiliation or something. Yeah, Colin. Harm to owned objects, possessions. Okay, Berto.
2: Yeah, like work, like that. Their work will be affected because they'll be embarrassed at work or something.
0: Yeah, so it's interesting. I'm guessing that you, neither of you, have been at least significantly stalked because the number <laughs> one, the number one thing is not knowing what's going to happen next. That's the biggest fear. Mm that 's that 's what stocking is designed to do it 's terrorism you know when mm-hmm. when the you know world trade center was was uh taken down by terrorists, we mourned the death of those two thousand some odd people, but the main thing was was, oh my God, you mean they 're among us? What are they going to do next? That was what terrified us, and that 's what we 're still reeling from is what could happen next? If you're capable of that, what are you going to do next? If you're capable of waiting outside my work, if you're capable of texting me a million times a day, if you're, te- if you're capable of uh, going to my boss and spreading lies about me, what are you going to do next? That's what the stalker knows you're going to be afraid of, and that is what the primary fear is. And when I've treated victims of stalking, that's the most common thing that I will hear is just like, I just don't know what's going to happen next, you know. And when you review all the things that the stalker has done, it's actually not that bad, you know. He was, you know, outside my work, or he spied on me one time and told me that he spied on me. It it this the fear that that induces is, well, if they're capable of that, what else are they going to do? Uh, the next things are behavior that. Uh, it would, it would never stop, worry that it would never stop, bodily harm, kidnap or harm of a child, which they depicted in the, in the movie, harm of another family member, as one of you said, loss of freedom, death, loss of a job, harm current partner, losing one's mind, and so on. But the most common is not knowing what's going to happen next. And that, that is, and it's not only in stalking, but it's also in a lot of high-control domestic violence relationships, is it's just that utter fear um Isn't that true of listening to our podcast as well? What like do you, you mean? You never know what's going to happen next. <laughs> That's the best you can do in terms of spontaneous. <laughs> like, come on, you can do better than that. Whack a doodle. <laughs> it's so <laughs> random. <laughs> Whack a doodle. Yeah. Hey, you, listeners. You just never know when a whack of the doodle is going to come <laughs> out, <laughs> out of Berto's mouth. <laughs> um, so reasons behind stalking. So, like, why do people stalk? Colin, what do you think?
1: Sexual attraction.
0: Okay. Birdo. Uh Loneliness. Okay. I mean,
1: good. What else, Colin? A jealousy, either related to work or some position they have you do not
0: okay good berto
1: childhood
2: trauma because they they felt unloved
0: yeah i mean those are reasons that would lead to these reasons which is you know a good way of answering the question you're talking about more like surface level reasons yeah like (laughs) retaliation anger control mental illness like being schizophrenic um you know liking the person having a crush Trying to keep the relationship, which is a big one, actually, um, which is what Alex does. She's trying to keep the relationship going by stalking. Substance abuse. Uh, the stalker liked attention. Uh, the person was alone. Someone mentioned that. They want to catch you doing something. They, they're trying to catch you doing something so they can blackmail you, that kind of thing. Um, crimes. So what sort of crimes might stalkers get involved in? Theft. Theft. Theft.
1: Breaking and entering.
0: Yeah, good. Colin, what do you think?
1: I guess this is also theft, but the stealing of passwords or, you know, um, unauthorized access to social media.
0: Yeah, we haven't mentioned that. That's a big one. Berto, what do you think?
1: Threats, like, um, you know, actually making a threat.
0: Uh, 16% was property damage. 12% of stalking victims reported attacking the victim themselves. And 9% reported attacking someone associated with them and that's what they show in this movie is um attacking a family member four percent of victims will report that attacking a pet the the bunny two percent um attack attacking or attempt of attack or harm of a child two percent so they actually you know got that right now it's a rare behavior of stalkers to do but it is found in the research the most common is damage to property um um, or someone in the victim's household. So, you know, they might throw a rock through the window or key someone's car or try to burn the house down, that kind of thing. Um, interestingly, the, the second thing is illegally entering the house or apartment. Nine percent breaking and entering? Yeah, 9% of victims will report that the stalker will illegally enter the house. My God. Okay. So stalking is a massive problem that is highly prevalent in every society is is basically genderless, except men are more likely to do it and women are more likely to be har- harmed, and people of color are more likely to be victimized. But it really is in every aspect of life, in every corner of our society. And I don't think that our laws are robust enough. Um, if you actually talk to people that go through this sort of thing, it is, it is, it is the worst. You know, like I said, I've, I've treated people, I've treated victims in the past, and they'll, they'll tell me that. They'll just say, like, I wish this person would just, like, stab me once so I could go to the hospital. And I just want it to be over. I, I, it's this constant, I, I wake up worrying about it. I go to bed worrying about it. It screws my sleep. I'm constantly looking over my shoulder. I'm wondering when the other shoe's gonna drop. Are if are are they watching me right now? You know, what it just it just will drive you nuts. And so um that is unfair. It's torture. It's criminal. And if our laws are there to protect people, it should protect that and there is I don't think the now state every state has different laws about it, but but I feel like if you can make a good case that someone's stalking you, I feel like uh, that person needs to be dealt with. The other thing I'll say is that a friend of mine that I grew up with, he has a security business. He He's a professional security guy. And one of the things that he does is he gets hired to deal with stalkers by rich people. So like Bill Gates will have a stalker, you know, because these people have frequently have death threats and this kind of thing. And so my friend's business, uh, he... Uh, is hired by these rich people to not only kind of protect them as they go from place to place with, like, bodyguards and bulletproof cars, but also to end the stalking. And I don't know if I've told you, Berto, about this. Maybe I have, maybe I haven't. But what do you guys think my friend does primarily to end the stalking? What What does he do to try to – and he, he often successfully ends the stalking.
2: He calls them up and says – I have a certain number of skills that I can use to make <laughs> no um i i think uh recommend
1: counseling
0: <laughs> interesting what do you think Colin
1: I think that he gives them something some kind of um, mis either a, a misdirect you know something to um what let me phrase this a little better. In the circumstance that they would be stalking, making it more difficult for them to stalk, so they have more obstacles and they have to get around it. Interesting.
0: Or, or show them show them the impact, maybe like. So what my friend said he did, which because I thought, you know, because he's like a military guy, I thought he would go threaten them or, you know, I don't know, put a lock on their door. I don't know <laughs> what they what they do. What he does is he contacts the family and says, Did you know that your brother is stalking oh, our client? And the family almost always is mortified and oh well he must be off his meds or he must be this and that. And then the security company says, Well, is there anything you can do? You know, or can we help you to reach out to him and so that we can actually help them, and because it's not just the stalking that is going on, this person is obviously really suffering. So, so that's what they do. Um, so, yeah, uh, stalking is a big problem in our society, and we have to raise more awareness, and we have to provide more services for people, more support. And if you know anyone who is being stalked, reach out to them, give them some support, hang out with them, just. You know, be with them because they'll probably feel better. So, you know, take it very, very seriously. It's a, it's, it's bad news. And if you have impulses yourself to stalk, which I, actually I do know some listeners do, uh, it's evidence of suffering. And so you deserve treatment so that you don't have to suffer. And by definition, you don't have to stalk as well. Rotten Tomatoes rating, Colin, take a guess. I'm
1: going to say 85.
0: Birdo. Uh,
1: you talk about the per-
0: the people
2: rating? People rating? No, not people. S- well, there's both, right? There's the the
0: critics and the people. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So the the critics I'd say 90%. 75%, which I was mm-hmm. surprised by. Uh, Roger Ebert actually uh, of course wrote a, re- a review in the Sh- Chicago Sun Times, which I loved. And I completely agree with this. Fatal Attraction is a spellbinding psychological thriller that could have been a great movie if the filmmakers had not thrown character and plausibility to the winds in the last minutes to give us their version of a grown-up Friday the 13th. Because this, because the movie... F- Because the good things in this movie, including the performances, are so very good, it's a shame that the film's potential for greatness was so blatantly compromised. Now, I don't know if I take it, so end of review, I don't know if I take it that far, because I still do think it's a great movie, but I think Roger Ebert put it pretty well. It's
2: like these people that will take a movie like Signs and throw away the... Baby with the bathwater, just because the last 25% of the movie is complete stupidity and drivel. And
0: so it negates the rest of it. I I, you know, when I saw Science <laughs> in the theater, I didn't think it was that dumb. I, I don't. That's re- oh, so dumb. I don't remember thinking it was amazing. It ruins the whole thing. But I remember, you know, enjoying it. What about you, No, Colin? the beginning is great.
2: I thought it was amazing. Yeah. He's so good at building suspense and everything. Yeah. And then everything for the last quarter of it is this contrived mess. Like, oh, the bat was there so that you in that moment could remember what the dying mom said. So, oh, wow. It's just so what, bad. Yeah.
0: Was the premise
2: that God was involved? or what? God, yeah. God sent the aliens to test this one dude's faith. So, or to like help him regain his faith, really, because he had lost oh. his faith. Was, it, God Mel, was it Mel Gibson? Because God took his wife in the first place. Is it Mel Gibson? Yes, it's Mel Gibson. Yeah. And Joaquin Phoenix. So, right? so God causes this accident that makes his wife die. And then he's like, oh, spoiler alerts, by the way. And then he's like, <laughs> oh, I've lost my faith. And then God's like, don't worry. I'll invade your planet and make it so that I have some little contrived things. Like your daughter can throw little glasses of water on them and stuff.
1: And then you'll regain your faith. Ah. I think that the ending of that movie is compromised in a way that Fatal Attractions isn't. And what I mean by that is, is that when you're watching Signs, if I remember, I need to rewatch it. But I (laughs) felt this film, this this script coming from a sense of things are out of your control. They're out of your comprehension and you're going to struggle and you're going to feel sad that you don't understand. And I didn't get the sense that answers were out there. Oh, yeah. Oh, oh yeah, sorry. I I, I got to be clear. I am not
2: saying that the the ending of uh, Fatal Attraction ruins the movie as much as I felt that the last part of Signs ruins Signs for me. I was not saying
1: that. Why. Well, I... <laughs> Yeah, no, totally. I, 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 but I think that what what happens at the end of Signs is that it's cleared up. You know, there's a Tiffany bow and the water and aliens and God. It's like Deus Ex Machina. It like it, to me, it's a tonal clash. It's a clash. Yeah. It it compromises the feeling of the film. Whereas I think a more open ended or ambiguous or terrifying, suspenseful, whatever you want to say ending, um, like the birds. You know, that's what makes the birds so great, in my opinion, is that you never know what the fuck the birds are doing, why they're here, and you yeah. end with uncertainty and that's that to me is not compromising the film just for the sake of monster destruction at the end so that society returns to safety and I feel like with Fatal Attraction it's it's not compromised because the film isn't it never says outright that she has borderline and I don't think that it takes the position of trying to even though it does a very good job of putting the pieces in there for people who are looking for it it doesn't outright say that this is this is the answer so i think that this because you have two things going on right you have this authentic depiction of someone with borderline and then you have movie alex who is villain alex who is basically serving as the unexpected entity in michael douglas's life everything he thinks that she won't do she does as an audience living through michael douglas everything that you don't think she will do she does. And she goes further than you think. So she's almost unclassifiable. And so this ramping up, of, as we've talked about, for, uh, suspense to suspense to suspense to get to the ending, um, this this big ending that doesn't match up with the predominant diagnosis, I think fits with the movie, even though it compromises a particular reading of Alex's character as having borderline. So I don't think it compromises the movie it just compromises people who are reading her that way. Does, does that does that make sense? Yeah, I how, mean, how I, cool. I think it's
0: just a, a a you know a a taste difference. You know what I mean? Yeah. Mm-hmm.
2: And how cool would it have been though? Imagine if like the whole ending sequence was she does something terrible. Like maybe she even kills the wife, but you know, like her harms are really bad. Something really terrible.
0: And then she wakes up from a dream. The whole movie's been a dream.
2: <laughs> no, she's an alien. No, 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 no. And then she's gone like windows are broken. The terrible thing's gone. And that's the last thing we know in the movie. And Michael Douglas is left wondering and we're left wondering, where do we go from here? Maybe they even like fast forward, like a month has gone by and so far nothing, but we don't know.
0: Right. But it's so, that's so Jordan Peele, right. But like, it's so eighties to have it end with a happy ending. Right. Yeah. Um, so it spent eight weeks number one in the U.S. Second highest grossing film in 1987. What wow. do you th- What do you think the the most grossing film in 1987 was? I haven't mentioned it yet, by the way. You probably wouldn't remember. E.T. But... E. No, E.T. Yeah, uh, no, no, right yeah. that's way. before. Those
2: that that. earlier. Okay, okay, so if you said you probably wouldn't remember it, then it's not Back to the Future Part Two.
0: Um, Three Men and a Baby (laughs) oh my god come
2: on get out of here get out of here with that
0: it sparked a lot of discussion of infidelity and some feminists criticized it for portraying a strong woman as being crazy which uh, in the context of filmmaking and representation I would agree with yeah it it had several nominations no wins best picture best director screenplay actress uh, supporting actress and editing Uh, rating Colin Out of
1: 10, what do you give it? I think probably objectively it's an eight given all the things that we've discussed. I'm sorry. I'm giving it an emotional 10. Ooh, Ooh.
0: wait. So, so wait, an eight, but an emotional 10.
1: Yeah, because this film lives in me and whenever that happens, I, I don't feel any need to dock it. You know, I, I think that it's, it, it's, it's taken life. And when and I I can feel it. I mean, it sometimes when, even when you just say the words "Fatal Attraction," I can feel the way the movie feels. How many times I, have you watched it? A lot, <laughs> oh, a lot. Really? I, and I, I just find it incredibly fascinating. And also, performances can win me over. And yeah, totally. Glenn Close and Michael Douglas. I mean, of course, especially and even Ann Archer. You know, I, I think that the I I want to rewatch the movie a lot because I see different things that they do, different behaviors, different choices of where they look where they're directing our attention um and it it keeps it rich for me every time i I put it on
0: you know another aspect that i i want to bounce it off you guys is that glenn close has kind of an odd look in this movie she oh yeah she has kind of a like gaunt eyes sort of sunken eyes that was interesting to me what do you guys think of that well, it's to me. She always
2: had an odd look. Maybe, maybe I was too influenced by this movie. But I actually, and I, I'm pretty sure this was on purpose because they they didn't cast sort of like a traditional femme fatale, like when they did Sharon Stone in Basic Instinct. You know, it was more of like she was seductive, but but in a real way,
0: like a, a more e- down to earth way. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Uh, so uh, by the way i would say um that my like my rating would be an 8 and but it's an 8 in the sense that i will have to forgive that ending because how impactful that movie was to me how impactful it was to the industry and to movies after it um and the performances yeah
0: for me i gave it an 8 too we're Whoa. we're like we're nice. all pretty high up there nice. i if this would have had a different ending like the ending that I, right. know, I was mentioning I I might have bumped it up to a ten, because up up until yeah. she enters the house and maybe maybe even the bunny, it <laughs> it's just so well made. The acting it it was interesting, it kept my attention, even though it's a mundane story in a lot of ways. And but interestingly, so I've been keeping uh ratings on my on movies I've been seeing since the eighties. And when I saw this in the '80s, I gave it a four. <laughs> I didn't oh. like it when I was a kid, or in my 20s, whenever I decided to rate it. Interesting. Um, so, I when I watched it, I thought, "Oh boy, I'm going to watch another call-in recommendation, and I'm going to, I'm going to not like it." But I, uh, I, I, I really, really liked it. I was very surprised how well this movie holds up. I mean, it's so well made in the first 95, percent and and well-written and visceral and understandable and real and just just a fantastic fantastic movie and you know for the time and for the subject matter just just really great and when you hear about Glenn Close wishing it had a different ending it just
1: makes me Mm -hmm. like her even more and Um, I think that you're right about it being it's just extremely visceral and also when when you brought up how she looked I think that it's important that she looked to the way that she did and not like Sharon Stone because part of I think what Michael Douglas's character sees in her is a- is a conquest, somebody to be conquered, you know or or an excuse or a way to feel like a man again, you know after they have sex, he's saying, Thank God when she's like, Oh, that was great you know and then and then immediately when she's like, Hey, would you like to go dancing? he's like. Oh, God, really? You know, he looks a little bit like, I don't know if I have the energy that, but he goes because he's like, it's almost like a competition. Like, I got to keep up. I got to like be the man. And so, you know, someone like Sharon Stone, who carries that crazy ethereal beauty, especially the way they designed her in Basic Instinct to look not... Like a woman you'd meet at a bar, to look like the woman that you meet in your dreams, you know, less of an easy conquest, you know. So I, I think that that's that's kind of important. But yeah, like the the reality yeah. of the of the characters, I think, is just as real today as it as it was then.
0: Yeah, and I really liked the way they didn't pull any punches with him. He's he's essentially an a hole. Yeah, yeah. And they also gave us no reasons, which I find to just be. Super aggravating when in writing, uh, inevitably in these scripts, there will always be like, "Oh well, I know why he's cheating. it's because his wife is a bee, you know, his wife mm. is is controlling or she won't have sex with him anymore. It, when we watch this movie, it's clear: this wife is the best, his family is the best, his home is the best. He has a dog and a kid and a life, and there's he's not unhappy. There's no there's no reason other than the fact that this woman just hits on him, and we also get the impression that this wasn't his first time doing this sort of thing. So it I and they never explained it. They never said this is you know. I, I wonder if at some point producers or writers or someone's get got there. They're like you got to explain why they're doing this. People want to know, hmm. but but there aren't easy answers to those <coughs> questions.
1: Yeah, they don't spoon-feed you the background, which is great. But so there are wanna... visual clues, I think, yeah. motifs, like, they, like sure. the pets, you know? Like, he's he has this dog that he has to take care of, but it's a responsibility, and he's stepping away. He's constantly not feeding the dog and going mm, into this yeah. other place. And then it's too much when he brings yeah. the dog to this person who's very destructive, brings the dog to the house. And then the, the bunny that's left outside in the cage, I think it's sort of this symbol of, like, responsibility and family. And sure, like, when he brings the bunny in by the fire, and it's super warm, and it's great, and that's when he, when he gets what he wants, you know, the loving wife and the loving daughter, and their smiling faces, you know, that's in context, and that's right for him at the moment, but he can leave it, and, and the, he when he leaves it, ultimately, towards the end with that bunny, the bunny pays the price for it. So I think there's sort of that, like, that rejection of comfort and responsibility that, you know, right, which, paid, he pays
0: for it. Which, I know we've been just speaking glowingly about it, but one... Thing that just slightly bugged me was that it play. I don't know, you know, if if an isolation this movie proposes this notion, but there's a lot of writing about how men are inherently caged animals as 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 husbands, right? That men are you have to catch a man and cage him in a in a marriage that mm-hmm. a real man would never fully want to be limited in that way. And that, uh, you know, there's... is it Chris Rock says something like, the only reason why your husband isn't cheating on you is because no one's hit on him. That's the only reason why no, he's, he's not cheating on you. And it's this, what I believe to be a sexist notion against men, that men don't want attachments, they don't want longevity in relationships, they don't want stability. And this movie... I, I don't, I don't, I'm not going to indict this movie, but I will indict like this movie in addition to several other movies that basically just put that idea forward without sure. scrutinizing it at all.
1: Yeah. Well, I have a question for you actually on that regard. I, I know we're trying to wrap up, but you know, I, I think that there's another layer to it that I see where characters in this situation and yes, predominantly they're men, they just don't have the conversation. You know, they don't, they're, they're so, so rarely have I ever seen somebody say, I actually got hit on by this, this lady, or I'm having strange feelings. It's like this, there's a, an idea of a family man or an idea of a husband, or maybe it's like a toxic masculine idea. I'm not sure where it comes from, but there's just no talk about it. And it it always seems to be, you know, that the affair is um, a sort of symptom of this lack of being able to To actually share and I know that that can inflict harm when you say actually i'm attracted to this other woman or like hey I was hit on and it didn't bother me But I just was wondering what y'all thought of that because it's just strange that I never see the conversation until after the affair has already happened
0: right Yeah I mean, I I will say anecdotally. I do see conversations like that sometimes I mean, they're not like distraught in my anecdotal experience, they're not just like, oh, my God, I don't know what I'm doing. It's more more like, look what I'm doing, this kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Everyone is shamed for dependency, and men are particularly shamed for, for, for dependency. Everyone is taught that they should be independent in our American society. Men are particularly taught that they're supposed to be independent. And there's a lot of conflict in marriages and a lot of unmet needs that are happening. And when someone comes along or there's an opportunity... For any gender to get some of those attachment needs met it's very intoxicating and people will just jump into those relationships because it's like oh my god I'm finally getting I, I finally feel wanted I finally feel you know like someone wants me sexually that someone wants to be with me it's not just this mundane relationship and if you are operating on a lifetime of of suboptimal getting your needs met and then this thing comes along and new relationship energy always feels very intense, then it's going to be a hard thing to resist. And it's and it's hard for any gender, you know. But men are particularly taught that they're things that will keep them suboptimal on meeting their needs met attachment wise, which make them particularly susceptible to affairs. Um, and that's my conceptualization. So Glenn Close, her era, I know we I, I promised to talk about it. So So this is just my take on her classic era. Um, By the way, she was 40 when she filmed this movie, which is interesting. Um, Yeah, she was 39 or 40. And by the way, she looks a lot like my mom. If you want to picture my mom, uh, Glenn Close and my mom. um, Yeah, that's
2: a good point. I didn't think about that.
0: Yeah. Um, So 1987, Fatal Attraction, but going back five years, World According to Garp. Uh, which was a big movie in my childhood with Robin Williams. Uh, the Big Chill. That was a massive movie in 1983. I never saw it because I was 12 at the time, but I remember like it. You know, people younger than my parents and older than me talked a lot about The Big Chill. The Natural. She's the love interest in The Natural with with um, Robert. Um, uh, Is it Duvall? No. The, no. Uh, Sundance Film Festival. Robert Redford. Uh, Redford. Oh, Robert Redford. Um, the Natural is an amazing movie, and she's amazing in it. Uh, I've never seen it. And Dangerous Liaisons, which I really remember her in. So, in in the span of five six years, she made those five classic eighties movies. Um, and she's made a whole you know bunch of other movies since then. But I I consider that to be her classic time. For Michael, but she Douglas, had a
2: TV series, right?
1: The Damages.
0: Damages oh, okay. So. I mean, she's been all over the place, but Michael Douglas, forty-three at the time, um, he he was in the middle of his classic period too. Nineteen eighty-three, Star Chamber, which I loved that movie as a kid. I still think about that movie sometimes. And Romancing the Stone. Oh my god! Nineteen eighty-four. I saw. I me and my friend Eric Lewis. We watched Romancing the Stone. I think on Laserdisc, like every day like an entire summer <laughs> like, oh my gosh we we could not get enough of that movie you know filmed on location in colombia oh
2: it <laughs> Doing air quotes no i'm oh. doing air quotes oh that's
1: right umberto i would love to talk to you later about like the representation of colombia in that film
2: yeah it, it, we were all laughing about it because i went to see it in the theater in colombia now we loved the movie but the whole <laughs> we were rolling our eyes a lot oh yeah you know all the accents are they're all mexicans and then all mm-hmm. the places like oh this is such and such places like that's not in Colombia,
0: but yeah. still it was an amazing i mean we movie. we have trouble with representation today mm-hmm. in 1984 yeah. it was particularly <laughs> bad. um fatal attraction 1987 wall street 1987 what fatal attraction oh, and, oh, and wall street in the same year uh, black rain 1989 and war of the roses 1989 Amazing. Um, then you fast forward to the early '90s, Basic in- Instinct, and of course, Falling Down. Yeah. So in the span wow. of ten years, he he made, and he he also is a really prolific producer. He in this time he produced uh, Starman, which I love. He produced Flatliners, which I loved back then. Oh yeah, is uh, that with
2: uh, Demi Moore and all that?
0: Yeah the 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 rat the brat pack, the brat pack were in the yeah. Flatliners. Yeah. Um And just a whole bunch of other movies that he's... I think he also... Oh, he he produced One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest as a young person. Right. Because um, anyway. him
2: and uh, Danny DeVito were college roommates. Oh, they, they were. were. They were acting buddies, and yeah. I think they produced things together. And yeah. They, yeah.
0: So it was really the height of both Michael Douglas and Glenn Close's career. And let's go on to the director, also his his golden era too, Adrian Lynn, English guy. He made Flash Dance nineteen eighty three, Nine and a Half Weeks, which huh. um I think you had suggested also is that another favorite of yours, Colin? Nine and a half weeks?
1: I, I just text I just texted you that I was watching it because I was try I was trying to work my way through his filmography and that was The first one that I started.
0: You were you were drilling over uh, over what's his face? Oh my god, uh, Mickey Rourke. Mickey Rourke. I always wanted to watch nine
1: and a half weeks
2: (laughs) because as a kid, I remember people were talking about it at school but I was too young and I couldn't watch it. Yeah. And I was always so curious what happens in nine and a half weeks. I what mean, happens is
0: very
1: interesting
2: sex.
0: Yeah. That's what happens. There's a lot of ice and like food mm-hmm. and eighties music. <laughs> a fa- so fatal attraction, Jacob's ladder, which was another movie throughout. That's another, a good movie. Yeah. Um, I loved, and then indecent proposal, Lolita, blah, blah, blah. and, he and he has a movie this year called Deep Water, which I haven't seen. Um, but uh, yeah, Jacob's Ladder. Um, I loved that movie. I saw it in the theater when I was nineteen when this movie yeah. came out. But I rewatched it more recently and was more like, uh, yeah, I I oh, really? see the appeal. But I guess it's kind of because I know the ending. You know, I know okay. what happens, so I was less. But man, when I saw that movie when I was nineteen, it was it was one of those movies that really affected me deeply. When I was yeah. nineteen, I mean, it really was mind blowing. That movie.
2: I was younger than you, but I remember feeling
1: maybe that, we should talk like, about it later. Is this is okay. interesting. Yeah.
0: <laughs> I mean, it's really well made. Like when he's dancing with her on the dance floor, and that tentacle comes out from underneath her as his legs, yeah. and you know the way it's shot and everything. It's, it's pretty amazing. Um, and isn't like a young uh, Macaulay Culkin, isn't he the son in that movie? Yes, that he is. I, don't I think yes, he, is, he is, yeah. Um, all right, people, final word, uh, Birdo and then Colin. Yeah, so as I was saying earlier,
2: this was a movie that it was so immersive and so amazing that I, it made me believe that I saw it in the theater, um, gripping my seat And just, uh, we go from, okay, this is an interesting affair. Where is this? Oh my God. And then like, it gets worse and worse and, ah, just so good. Um, so I, I think that overall it was a good thing that it was made and it influenced a lot of things. I'll always have fond and scary memories of it.
0: Yeah, just chiming in on your final word is that it influenced a lot of things, but it's almost like in the 90s they bastardized this movie in a bad way in a lot of ways. Like this is the gold standard. It's sort of like uh, First Blood was the gold standard, and all the Rambo movies were like bastardized versions of First Blood. Colin,
1: final word. I think that as a movie, when viewed as something that doesn't have to answer a question of a type of person person that ha- is like this, you know, whether whether it's working woman or borderline, you know, when when you're not trying to learn from it and you're just experiencing it. I think it really holds up. And I think that one of the things this movie does wonderfully when when viewed by the right person, is that it starts conversations. I, I mean, I think this movie is referenced a lot as, as coming out at a time when people just couldn't stop fucking talking about it. And I think, yes, because it was a very new concept, a very new style with a new approach to these characters that obviously we've seen more of um, today. But it's, I think it's timeless in a way. And it's also a time capsule. So if you're in the mood for something that is gonna get under your skin it's not pc i I don't even like that term i don't even know why i just fucking used it um (laughs) but it's it's one person's vision of one very troubled individual and i think that the performances are absolutely astonishing and it that's part of what makes the film really work and i think that you know It's also not just the performances, but what they connect to, the shots, the the way that the telephone is a character, the way that lighting is used um, when it's hit on different colors or hit on white. You know, what does it mean when there's there's all these rich, beautiful flowers that are around the wife or around the family or there's lush green and when the light is even. And then the harsh lighting of the in the in the almost stone-like residence of a, you know, Alex and she's wearing these white sheet in these white sheets, wearing white things that look like they're from a hospital. You know, the contrast and the visual storytelling, everything is just so alive. And so If you love film, can't go wrong with this one, I don't think. All right,
0: everyone. Nice. That's the final word. Please take care of yourself because you
1: deserve it. You deserve it, especially if you feel like you're being ignored. Uh (laughs) Oh.